can turn to Isaiah, right in the middle of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 40. We're reviewing some of the classic Advent passages uh, from Isaiah that get incorporated into the New Testament story, the story of Christ coming into the world. Clearly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they draw on many of the prophets, but especially Isaiah, the preeminent uh, prophet, you might say, the prophet par excellence. He's amazing, wrote so much, and it's beautifully written. We're in chapter 40 today, skipping way ahead to a different time in the story. Last week, we looked at a time where Isaiah was talking about what was happening in Israel, which was a northern part of, of the country, um, and Assyria was a big threat coming in and was going to take away the people of God that were in northern Israel. Well, now the story has advanced where Judah is themselves in danger of being taken away, and indeed God has said that this will happen. It hasn't happened yet, but Judah, the very people of God, the place of Jerusalem, are going to fall to the Babylonians, and Isaiah is, is prophesying during that time. We're going to read here as he comes off of a very negative section, a prophet where he is railing against the people of God, and yet he turns his tone here in chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. Let's read the first 11 verses together. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says cry and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms, for He will carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. When I was uh, in seminary in graduate school in St. Louis, um, I worked at a, a huge guitar store. Uh, it's actually the biggest guitar shop in all of the Midwest. So there's over a thousand guitars on the wall. And I worked at this place and I was new to sales and uh, wasn't very good at it. And uh, frankly, never got good at it. Uh, though some people think that what I'm doing up here is salesmanship, I assure you it's a very different skill set uh, than on the floor of a, of a guitar shop. And I remember uh, one of my early mistakes in, in trying to sell guitars was 
that I would spend way too long with, with people. Um, so a guy came in, and he, he was looking for a guitar, and I was going to help him find one, and I was excited because we have all these guitars, and so I was showing him uh, all that we had, and I probably showed him over the course of two or three hours like 50 different guitars. And, um, and he, you know, he was having the time of his life, I was having the time of my life, and um, we, had, we had it all whittled down uh, over time. We kind of narrowed it down, and then there were, there were two left he was choosing between. And in the end, he didn't buy either. My manager took me aside and uh, was, was talking to me afterwards and said, look, you're new to this, I get it, but like, you need to limit the choices. The human brain, he said, can only remember the voice of a, of, a, of a particular guitar for about two minutes. Now, I never looked up that stat to see if he was just making that up on the spot or not, but he said, you can only remember the way that that particular voice of the guitar sounds. It's, it's makeup of wood and, and, um, and, and size and scale length and all those, the things that make a, an instrument unique. You can't remember the distinctive things about it longer than a couple of minutes, so you need to not bring more than two or three so that the human brain can remember this. He wanted me to sell more guitars, obviously. But I never forgot that, that phrase, that, that voice of the guitar. Uh, and, um, you know, it's made me think this week that we are people that are overwhelmed with hearing lots of different voices. There are 50 different inputs that have happened even this week, advice we've received from friends, social media messaging pounded down our throats, the, the voices of, of experts, the voices of radio and podcasts, the, the voices of experts in every different field. And if we're Christians and if we're seeking to follow God, maybe the voice of God gets in there too. Like, and the voice of the scriptures, like what's true and how do I live my life? There's all these voices that overwhelm us and make us hard to move. And as the, the saying goes, uh, the confused mind says no. Most of us have a running commentary of different voices in our heads about how we should live. Some of us still hear the voices of our parents, maybe even decades after we've moved out or even after they've passed away. The, the particular things that they said to us, maybe one time, maybe repeatedly, that have become a commentary on our lives. We need to be careful about what voices speak the loudest to us. What things shout over us and then lodge their way down into our souls that make us act certain ways and feel certain ways and believe certain things? Because all of us are influenced by those things that we hear. And the passage today is about comfort and where real comfort comes from. And I think sometimes we look to voices for comfort and at times this kind of running commentary that brings us comfort says things like this. At least you're not like that person. And we take a moment of comfort. We think, yeah, I'm not like that person. At least you're better than him or 
her or whomever. Another voice comes in and says, don't worry, everything will be, will be better when X, Y, or Z happens. And for a moment we feel comfort. A voice has spoken to us saying, yeah, it will be better. A voice comes in and says, well, at least you're still young. Or if you're not young, at least you're still in shape. Or at least <laughs> if you're not young or in shape... At least you make enough money. Or maybe you don't make enough money. At least my kids are well behaved. At least, at least, at least. That's how we comfort ourselves. We find the unique thing that we think is going to make us stand out. But what happens when those things fade? What are those real comforts? Do they really satisfy the soul? We need to be careful about what voices speak the loudest. Throughout these 11 verses we've just read, there is a cry, a voice that speaks loudly. It's in verse 2, cry to her. Verse 3, a voice cries. Verse 6, a voice says cry. Verse 9, lift up your voice with strength, herald. This voice is the voice of the prophets, which is the voice of God that speaks the loudest to His people. And what we're going to see today is the need for us to listen to that comforting voice above all other comforts. That's what I want to challenge us with today. Real comfort only comes from listening to God's voice speak truth to our souls. It doesn't come from any of the false comforts, the other voices that we use to satisfy that need for comfort. The real source of comfort is God's voice. And we need to see what He says to us, what the types of things that He brings to bring comfort to us. He shouts. There's a lot of shouting going on, a lot of crying out in this passage. We might, if Isaiah was written today, it might be all written in all caps. Why all this shouting? Why does he keep crying out? Why not just tell us? Doesn't God come to us with a still, small voice? Why is he shouting so much here? It isn't because we can't hear. It's probably because we refuse to be comforted. I have a suspicion that this is cried to us because we can't hear it otherwise. Sin has so deeply wounded us that we are not very good at being comforted. Many of us beat ourselves up. We have high standards for ourselves. We wear it like a badge of honor. Like what other people want us to do and what God then wants us to do is to always be ashamed. But he speaks comfort this morning. The great pastor and scholar John Calvin said about this passage, if the prophets only muttered, if they only spoke indistinctly, if they kept it quiet, the consolation, the comfort would be doubtful or weak. But now that they publish it boldly and with wide open mouth, all doubts are removed. 
God shouts his comfort to us this morning, and we need to receive it. So the all-important question is, what does he comfort us with? What does his voice say to our souls that actually brings a real comfort beyond the false comforts that we say to ourselves or that other people tell us? I want to say three things that this voice cries to us that should bring a real comfort. The first one is this, God is gentle with me. If you are in the household of God, if you are a part of His flock, as the passage says, then this is true. God is gentle with me. In fact, the passage begins and ends, it is bookended in God's comforting, gentle presence. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, comfort, he says, that command there is to the prophets, to the future prophets in this age that Isaiah is looking forward to. The old King James says, comfort ye, comfort ye. That's a plural. You all, comfort, comfort God's people. There's a whole bunch of voices. The leaders of God's people are called out to comfort God's people with this, that He speaks tenderly to us. That is literally according to the heart. Speak according to the heart to my people. God is gentle with us. What is he gentle towards? Two things. He is gentle to us in our affliction and in our sins. Our affliction. He says, cry to her. Her warfare is ended. Or her warfare will be ended. It's a future tense. He's talking about a time when God will bring them back and then ultimately a time when God will restore all things and their Warfare or conflict will end. The affliction. The word there, warfare, is about the discharge of soldiers. You won't need to send out any more soldiers. Because this whole business of needing to defend yourself against Assyria or Babylon or any other power will be gone. All of your ordeals will be over. Our affliction. Secondly, our sins. Her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned. The iniquity of God's people, the sinfulness, is what led to this exile in the first place. And it's a problem. Everyone believes that there is a problem with the world. Everyone does. Whether you're a Christian, whatever you believe. You believe that there's a problem with the world. Well, Christians believe that the problem with the world is iniquity. That's the original source, and it spins out in all different kinds of things. But God says here that iniquity is pardoned. You've had enough. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That phrase means that God is judged in the future, that Israel has suffered enough. Double there means abundant. It doesn't mean necessarily, it doesn't mean at all that, that God is punishing them twice over what they deserved. 
He says, you've received a double portion of judgment, and I, and I judge that to be enough. An analogy we might use is if you have disobedient children. I don't, uh, but you might. Um, <clears throat> no, if you have a disobedient child, and you, in your righteous anger, you say to them, because you have disobeyed, because of your iniquity, uh, this is how I speak at home, um, <laughs> because of your iniquity, I will give you three jobs to do. And then you watch them as they respectfully do their jobs, and they do one job, and they two, do two jobs, and then you say to them, that's enough. It doesn't mean that they're offense, their iniquity didn't merit three jobs, doesn't mean that their iniquity didn't merit much more than three jobs, but that's what you gave them and then you relented, and that's what God does. It doesn't mean that Israel has somehow paid off her sins, but he says, look, at the end of this time, I'm going to limit it. It's going to be 70 years in exile, and then I'm going to bring you back, and then you're going to walk away again, and then I'm going to bring Christ, and I'm going to limit this effect of sin. It doesn't mean that their offense wasn't bad. It was. But in the tenderness of a parent, you sometimes don't just want to see the child suffer. You want to see them restored quicker. And that's exactly what God does. He's tender towards his people. He's gentle towards them in their sins. And sometimes we might believe the first one, that he's gentle towards us in our affliction. After all, the scripture says he is near to the brokenhearted. And that, that's true. Whatever ordeal we're going through, God knows it. He understands it. He is gentle towards us. But do you see that He's also gentle towards us even when we walk fully away from Him in our sins? But I would say in general, we have a problem. We forget about the tenderness and gentleness of God. We emphasize His might and his power sometimes, which is not a bad thing to talk about. Look how the passage ends. Verses 10 and 11 provide such a seeming contrast, but the contrast is just a beautiful thing to, of God's character. Look at verse 10. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arms rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and he and his recompense before him. This is a God who's mighty, who's powerful. He's going to bring recompense, judgment to the world. That's true. But look at verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. God is mighty. God does bring judgment. This is not to the exclusion of that but when, he, when it comes to his flock, he is tender as well as being mighty. The comfort of knowing God's gentleness towards you brings a kind of growth that other things can't bring. I can speak to this autobiographically. Since I grew up in a church that was a good church and strong in doctrine, and I grew up learning a lot about God and I embraced it. I was 14 years old when I read my first Puritan book. Uh, these great theologians from 
hundreds of years ago, and I was a poster boy for that. I was a spiritual leader, even through college, went to seminary, studied very hard, did well. And the knowledge of God and knowing things about Him like His might and His power and His sovereignty, those are all important things for our growth. You need to know who God is. You need to honor Him with your life and respect Him. But I'll tell you that there's a point where the knowledge about God plateaus in terms of spiritual growth. Where it reaches a point where you can know more things about Him and it doesn't change your experience of Him or your level of holiness. In fact, it can go in the opposite direction. It can lead to pride and disordered loves. One of the things that changed for me a number of years ago was an 80-year-old something lady, spiritual director, who is still my spiritual director, who told me about the gentleness of God, about His tenderness, not just in general, not just as an attribute, but His gentleness towards me, to relax, to be led, to be shepherded, to even be even though it's embarrassing to some of us, taken up into his bosom like a lamb in his arms, the scripture says, to be comforted. This is who he is towards you. What leads to repentance, the scriptures tells us? Is it the severity of God? Is it his sternness? Is it your knowledge of God that leads to repentance? No, it is the kindness of God. That leads to repentance. Romans 2 verse 4. He's gentle towards us. That consolation is so important. There's a special comfort here. Just I'll say before we move on. To parents. I believe. At the end. I wonder if you caught it. That he will gently lead those that are with young. There's a special kind of tenderness, Isaiah says, that God has towards parents, a special kind of leadership. And I'll note just in passing that the young here are part of the flock of God. They're not outside that need to be brought in. But the emphasis here is on those that lead those who are young, that is, the parents. And I know that many of us are seeking to be gentle with our kids and lead them well and we need to hear God's gentling voice to us I'm leading you while you lead them the best thing that you can do to learn how to be gentle with your kids and lead them well is to be his lamb to be taken up in his arms to be led by him and that enables you to bring that gentleness of God even into your family. The voice cries to us, God is gentle, He's tender towards us. That's the first consolation. Secondly, more briefly, another voice cries to us, a consolation. And the consolation says that God will make everything right. That's a real comfort. It's a real comfort that God will make everything right. It's not a false comfort. Look at verse 3 with me. A voice cries 
In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. (coughs) And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This voice comes into the wilderness. It comes to those who are in the wilderness. This wilderness being a theme in the scriptures. Where have God's people been in the wilderness? After they left Egypt, they were 40 years in the wilderness. And now Isaiah is prophesying about a time where they're going into Babylon, wilderness 2.0 where they're going to be away from the temple, where they're going to have to band together in ways that they don't have a temple, they don't have their regular sacrifices. The wilderness is associated with wandering, with judgment, as a whole generation dies in the wilderness under God's judgment. It's a place of God's felt absence, even though He was with them, even those 40 years, in the cloud and in the fire. It's a place of no direction, a place of difficulty, a place with terrain problems, valleys, hills, pits. Remember, Moses was leading, we don't know how many people, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people in the desert towards the promised land, wandering around, that's rough terrain outside of the promised land. But here Isaiah promises that even after that wilderness wandering, and after the one that comes, there will be a great leveling. The valleys will get filled up, the mountains will get reduced, the rough patches smoothed over, and on top of it all, a highway runs. A place of clear direction, in other words, a place that's easily seen and easily traversed, and on this highway, all flesh will see the glory of God. What does this mean? It means that what God promises He will do, and the great comfort for the Christian, is that He will remove all the obstacles to His purposes in the world. All of them. The obstacles from within, our own sinfulness, our own waywardness, our own Paths of destruction. And from without, from the, from the spiritual powers at work, from the world, the systems of injustice created by sinful people, all of it ends in this glorious display and it's public. All flesh will see it together. The glory of the Lord. How is that comforting? Do you see how comforting that actually is? Anything that is not right, anything that is unjust, anything that is difficult, anything that gets in the way, that is painful, will have an ending on level ground. It will end in the glory of God. That's the promise of Isaiah. It's the motivating comfort and promise of Advent that we look forward to a time when God will level everything and make it right. How does he do this? All three 
of the gospel of this called synoptic gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of the gospels that were very similar to each other in the storyline tie this specific few verses to the ministry of John the Baptist. In Matthew 3 and Mark 1 and Luke 3, he is the voice crying in the wilderness make way, prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist situates himself outside of Jerusalem in the wilderness. And he made people come to him and to that voice that's crying in the wilderness. And what was his message? All three of the Gospels say this is what he preached over and over and over again. Repent. Repent. Repent means to turn away and then to turn towards something. He says, repent, turn away from a life that's built outside of God and one that is toward Him. And this is the way that the great leveling starts. It's not where it ends. All of the creation will be made new. Every system, every place, every difficulty. But it begins, it comes from John the Baptist who says, repent. It begins with repentance. And on that repentance, the highway of our God begins where Christ comes and accomplishes redemption. And if we want the world to be made right, which we all do, it begins with us being right with God, turning towards Him, heeding John the Baptist, repenting and turning to Christ. And so the great leveling begins in us and spreads to the end of the world in God's time. God will make everything right. There's a third and final comfort we can talk about this morning. God's promises will last forever. Voice cries one more time to us. Verse 6, a voice cries. Voice says cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the voices that is so disquieting, that is so unnerving, that is so very powerful is that Nothing lasts. My life is short. And the things that I do seem to bring little accomplishment. This is certainly what Solomon felt. as reading the book of Ecclesiastes this week as he talks about life being this vapor, this vanity. It's just gone in just a second. And one of the vanities is that I work my whole life, Solomon says, and then I leave it to someone who didn't work for it this kind of vanity. Our lives are short and we live in a world full of short-lived things. We live in a place where there's what's called planned obsolescence. Big word meaning just this, manufacturers and designers, they design products, they plan for them to expire, to be out of date, to need to be replaced within a few short years. Things are built that way. Nothing lasts. 
Even good things don't last, as this scripture passage says. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The word beauty there, it's most often used of God. It's Hesed, His covenant love, His faithfulness. Whatever faithfulness the flesh has, whatever good things, whatever, whatever beauty we have, it, it fades like the flower of a field. All of our best attributes, they fade. But the comfort comes to us this morning that there is something that lasts. The Word of God stands forever. That promise is comforting in two ways. First, it means that nothing bad made by human beings can last either. You see that where he says the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely it would be a comfort as Isaiah says this to the people who are going into exile. He's saying, look, Whatever rulers and dominions, whatever Assyria, Babylon, Medes, Persians, Rome, United States, whatever in the line of kingdoms that come, it's all just grass. The Lord blows on it. It's done. But more than that, more than just the bad things not lasting, there's a comfort here that we can attach ourselves to something more permanent. The Word. The Word of God stands forever. This is the time of the year where we recognize that the Word of God still stands in the person of Jesus Christ because the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The promises of God, whatever He has spoken, never end. But the greatest fulfillment of that is the person, Jesus Christ. He is the Word that stands forever. When Christ came into the world, this is fulfilled because all flesh is grass. The grass fades, but Christ was the grass that didn't fade. He was flesh. He took on flesh, but He did not fade, and He fades not still. He is still abiding forever. And so when we are attached to Him, the Word of God stands forever. We stand forever. We become like grass that never fades because we are in Christ. And so in the end, Christ is the only comfort, the only consolation. As the Heidelberg Catechism tells us in question one, what is my only comfort in life and death that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? If we belong to Christ, who stands forever, then we stand forever. And what a comfort that is. Because it means that it's not my beauty, it's not my faithfulness, it's not my effectiveness, it's not my ability to look, do, or seem better than anyone else. Any other comfort that might for a moment say, you are okay. Christ says, we're okay. And if you're in Him, you never fade. You stand with him forever. Let's pray.